0: Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. This week, we've created a special episode to take you behind the scenes of the NCARB Scholars of Professional Practice. The 2023 cohort included 16 professional practice professors from architecture programs across the country who gathered at Ball State's satellite campus in Indianapolis. Participants represent a diverse number of academic settings, including a community college, an HBCU a participant from the GSD, international perspectives, as well as a variety of professors from both public and private institutions with small and large class sizes. The purpose of the event is to provide educators with a supported venue to engage with their peers and critically examine the content within their course and their delivery of the material. This episode features 10 voices who will share the story of this event and their individual perspectives of what they gained. We'll start with an introduction to the Scholars Program featuring Jeremy Fretz, David Henson, and Daniel Overby. We'll transition to the Scholars featuring five of the participants who share their narratives about their experience. Evelyn and I will then discuss questions that I asked the participants to think about in advance about the future of practice. We'll close with a look at the farther future with Dina Prostos, Chair of NCARB's Futures Collaborative. Our first speaker is Jeremy Fretz, Assistant Vice President of Experience and Education at the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards. Jeremy will explain more about the program and introduce you to some of our speakers.
2: What you'll be hearing today are some excerpts from our NCARB Scholars event, and that is an event that we host annually now for five years, which gathers together professional practice educators of, of all stripes, of all different experience levels, all different course types, whether they're teaching in graduates level or undergraduate, and allows them to learn from each other and to learn from some of our expert facilitators. The Scholars Program was born out of really two points that came together. One was a request from educators who gathered at our Licensing advisor Summit. And they really liked having a chance to come together and compare notes. And they said, boy, it would be great if we could do this in more than a one-hour workshop. And the second is the research that was done by NCARB at ACSA, which really looked at where and how professional practice is taught, and that research found that it is widely variable in terms of who is teaching, their level of experience either in teaching or in practice, as well as, you know, whether it's a three-credit hour course or whether it's multiple credit hour courses. So there was this real need to ensure that there was some consistency and quality The other piece is, frankly, that often because it's only a three credit hour course or a small fraction of an architecture program is that it often is overshadowed by design studios and other priorities. And so, you know, these are faculty and content areas that sometimes are neglected in programs. So it was very important to the council to undergird and support the education in this content area that's of particular interest to, uh, to the council. So there are a couple of goals in the program. One is to connect faculty to one another, really to create that community of practice, hopefully to help them, you know, talk to each other outside of our event. Another goal is to provide a, a model experience where we try to both demonstrate and teach some learning methodologies, some teaching methodologies, because not everyone has had, you know, whether you're a practitioner or even a professional educator, you may not have been trained how to teach. And so we try and insert a bit of modeling and explanation of, you know, how to use adult education principles to teach students. And then the other piece is to very specifically focus on content, the content areas that they teach and make sure that they are, you know, understand or have access to resources for those content areas and have, you know, innovative and then blending it all together is making sure they have, you know, they're able to deliver that content in a way that students learn the most about it and or learn the appropriate amount about it. And so a lot of that opportunity for for peer discussion has a huge impact on the faculty that attend.
0: Next you'll be hearing from David Henson, one of our speakers for the event. He'll share his perspective on why the scholars program is important to educators.
3: My name is David Henson. I'm at Auburn University and I teach the professional practice class for upper division students in the architecture program. I actually began my teaching career about 31 years ago in Philadelphia and my first course was professional practice at Temple. And then I began my teaching career here at Auburn in 1997 and among my teaching responsibilities was was pro practice and so over the last 25 years Pro practice has probably been the most consistent of my teaching assignments, I would say. Not every year because I, I was an administrator for some period of that time. But I'd like to say I've been teaching professional practice for, you know, over the last 30 years. So a lot of experience with, with that course. I love the scholars event. When you walk into that room at that event, suddenly you're in a community of people that are all pretty equally passionate about teaching this topic really well. I learned so much from the other participants and I pick up so many ideas, you know, from them about oh I'm gonna as soon as I get home, I'm gonna try that, right? It's such a rich exchange of great ideas. That community is not one that sort of gets in the room and argues with each other about what we ought to be doing. It's a group that really says, Man, we all are passionate about this. Let's kind of share and learn from each other. Having a space like that for this particular community is pretty wonderful. If you think about it, in architectural education, there are plenty of events around, organized around people who are teaching beginning design or people who are teaching architectural history or people who kind of focus on building technology. You know, there are all little communities for those those teachers and scholars. The NCAR program is really the only thing I know of that is a kind of a community room for people who teach professional practice, and that's incredibly valuable. You know, I've had an interesting conversation with a number of people over my career about what their experience of professional practice class was like, and while some of those recount positive stories, not everybody does. And you know, I, I just want to say, for me, I, my first challenge as a teacher in this space is to. Give my students confidence and about this domain of what their professional futures look like, and to and to generate excitement about it. You know, the, to empower them. You know, to say all of these topics are part of the equation that creates great design, and don't see these as an outlier to design process. They're part of the process of what makes it happen, and you need to be equally good at this in order for that kind of standard of, of practice to be the outcome, right? So just approach this as, as if this is another set of muscles that you need to develop in order to be the kind of architect you want to be. And if, if there's a day where I walk away and say, well, I scared them to death today, that's a bad day, right? I shouldn't be doing that in the classroom. That's not my job. And in fact, that's it's been done too much to architecture students. I really want them to be excited and about, you know, getting out of school and getting into practice and starting that next phase of their journey.
2: The feedback we get from the participants is great. We hear a wide variety, but it's generally along the lines of, this is changing how I'm teaching right now. Or this will, we've even had an individual who said, I came away, I'm going to change how I teach. Very seasoned faculty member who came away convinced. He's like, I'm going to change how I grade my classes based on things he had heard at the event. We hear positives about the opportunity to hear criticism from one another and to actually talk to people who know the content. For some faculty, it's even their first time and they you know they're heading into teaching professional practice for the first time and this gives them a an opportunity to hit the ground running with some real expert coaches behind them it was especially fun for me this year to host the event at ball state my alma mater at the Indianapolis Center. And I think Ball State has uh, faculty who I knew as young faculty, and now they are leading the charge in the future of education and the Department of Architecture and the dean's office. And so it, it was really great to uh, to be work with them and to celebrate the future. And that is also the place where I first got invited to attend some workshops on improving education and participate actually as an interviewee in the the famed Boyer report on education and practice. So it felt like coming full circle for me.
4: I'm Daniel Overby. I'm an assistant professor with Ball State University, and I've taught the pro practice sequence there for about half a decade. And I'm also the undergraduate internship coordinator. I learned to the Scholars of Professional Practice program about three years ago, applied, and I was fortunate to be accepted in the 2021 class, and I was completely blown away by the program. Practice is changing so rapidly. It's difficult for any teacher of professional practice, even adjuncts and those who are licensed architects and have been teaching in the field for years. There's so much that we're trying to offer and impart, and we never have enough time to cover everything we want to cover. Effective means of teaching, getting creative, making it engaging, making it dynamic. It was so refreshing to be surrounded by a peer group that have the same struggles, can relate, but also just had so many amazing ideas and the peer sharing was extraordinary so after i went through the scholars program in 2021 i knew immediately that i wanted to show off the midwest show off indianapolis show off ball state we had an opportunity to submit and host through our indianapolis satellite which gave a great opportunity to host right in the middle of downtown indianapolis on the near east side and just have these practitioners and teachers of pro practice from across the country, just a symbol in, in our backyard and because Ball State has this longstanding tradition and resume of community engagement. And I think that's an important thread through pro practice today. And it was an opportunity for us to also just give back a bit. I valued my opportunity through the scholars program. Ball State supported me there. We, we had an opportunity here to host and bring everybody to Indianapolis. And, and it was great to do for a few days. And I, I feel like it, it went well. Practice is changing. It's changing quickly. It's a constant challenge to be conversant in an ever-expanding field of tools and trends and issue sets And anytime you have an opportunity to engage in peer feedback, I think that is extremely valuable. And even in a less formalized way through the scholars program, where it can be more of a conversation and be a bit more fluid, I think that is extremely valuable and very productive, I would say, to anybody who might hear this and might be considering joining the scholars and professional practice program that they should just dive in when the application window opens up seek the support you need from your institution and jump right in it was an extremely valuable experience for me and i would encourage anybody to take the plunge and engage in the
2: program In this next segment, you'll be hearing from some of our attendees from this year as they share their experience firsthand from attending the program.
5: Hello, everyone. My name is Tad Heidgerken. I'm an architect from Detroit, Michigan, and an associate professor at the School of Architecture and Community Development at the University of Detroit Mercy. I've been teaching the professional practice course which is part of a five-year master program at the University of Detroit Mercy since 2019. And I took it over from my predecessor and slowly been modifying the course over time. I've had a sabbatical this last year and I'm taking the opportunity to revamp the course. So I'm hoping that our meeting today is going to be very fruitful for this opportunity it's perfect timing for me but also i'd like to maybe discuss some of the strategies i'm taking to discuss some of the difficult topics that the course presents to students in, in the limited amount of time that we have with inside the semester as i mentioned before the class is part of the five-year accelerated master's program, and it always comes into conflict with their thesis work. And so I've been trying to tie the thesis work directly into the course to try to find ways of them overlapping some of their interests in architecture through the use of creating a business plan as a tool then to investigate how they might be successful in the future of practice. And I found some really interesting results from this process, including results from a questionnaire that I had recently sent to the students that have recently graduated. Some of the highlights of the course are firm visits, an exercise in which the students create cartoons that reflect positions between the contractors, architects, clients, and the community, as well as the aforementioned business plan, which is a group project that the students seem to really connect with. I'm looking forward to meeting everyone and becoming part of this community as I think it's an important aspect of the education that most of the time gets relegated to a class that is not seen as important by the student.
6: Hi, everybody. Uh, Vanessa Alice achuki here. I am a Equity in Action presidential postdoctoral fellow at Kane University, Michael Graves College School of Public Architecture. Um, I'm in my second year of that fellowship, and I'm, I'm teaching undergraduate studio and professional practice, which is in the first year of the MArch program. We have a four plus two program. Background-wise, I graduated from the City College of New York in 2005 and with a Bachelor of Architecture degree. And um, shortly thereafter, I got very involved with AI New York and NCARB as a IDP coordinator, now licensing advisor. A former professor of mine and my first boss, Gary McNeil, a black architect in Harlem, actually was the coordinator for the professional practice class at CCNY. Um, And that was my first sort of exposure to it. I was an unofficial TA from third year through fifth year and a few years after graduation while I was working with Gary. And um, it was just a wonderful experience. I was excited to inherit the course for a few years at CCNY, where I taught professional practice. I was the licensing advisor. And I also taught co-op internship class for quite quite some years, I think about 10 years. Most recently, I'm now at, at Kane University. Professionally, I am a registered architect in New York and New Jersey. Um, I got my license in 2010 in New York State. And I was working at Dettner Architects on a lot of affordable housing, sustainable affordable housing projects in New York. And after Hurricane Maria, I became interested in um, resilience and um, community based design, energy equity, and that's what I'm focusing on in my research now.
0: Our next speaker is Daniel Overby, who will share his perspective on participating in this year's program.
4: In some ways, it's an expansion of some common thematic elements that go through the Practice Disrupted podcast, where you and Evelyn have talked about being vulnerable at this moment we're all struggling to get through in professional practice. Well, big surprise, our teachers and our students are struggling as well. And I think there's a conversation that's not being had. And when we started to open up in the scholars program, you find that we're all dealing with these issues. And it's okay to be a bit more vulnerable and to acknowledge the difficulties, acknowledge the failures that we've had. And I think when students see us as teachers or as architects, it's really easy as we're we're, we're doing a little bit of performance art, you know, we're trying to make class engaging. And I think it gives this false impression that our career trajectory was up and to the right the entire time. And it it never ever is. And I think in those moments when we can acknowledge and unpack opportunities uh, to have conversations about failure and what that was like, that the students, I think it's actually encouraging to them. They, They receive it well. And it's, also, uh, some other thematic elements we've always known for developing clientele and to build your, your firm that you need to really lean into relationship and build trust. But I feel like that's one of those lessons that comes through experience. You can hear someone say that, but you really value it when you do it. And uh, over the course of time, and people that were closer. To your life in certain seasons, and what that meant, and the opportunities that flowed through that. And I, I think when there's a chance to talk to students about the importance of building relational capital, that's again something that maybe doesn't come up in a basic conversation about contracts or firm management, but it's so important. It's the lifeblood of everything that we do. And it was really great to, through the Scholars Program, get that reflected back in <laughs> that we're, we're all dealing with these issues, and it's uh, a constant hot mess. We're having to recalibrate, figure out how to navigate uncertain waters, and it was refreshing and encouraging to get that feedback from our peers that we're all going through this together.
7: I'm Kate Kofer. I am an architect at KKT Architects in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I am adjunct teaching at the School of Architecture at Oklahoma State University, and I'm doing right now the Practice Management class, so the Architecture Practice Management, the 5193 course that they have there for graduating seniors. My class at OSU this semester, it's actually 42 students. Forty of the students are in class with me. Uh, we're doing kind of a hybrid virtual and in-person due to some extraneous reasons. But two of the students are actually not enrolled in the class. They're in study abroad, I believe, in Italy. But we're doing some of the criteria with them on the side, kind of, I guess, to make sure they meet all the NAB criteria for the graduation. So my class is very diverse. We have a lot of younger and, I'd say, older students mixed together from all different backgrounds here in Stillwater, and it is their final semester of class. So a lot of them are getting ready to graduate. So I think everything in the course is gonna be very relevant to them and they seem very interested as we've just kicked off the semester to talk about all these subjects and topics. So I signed up for the NCARB Scholars Program because I heard really great things about it. And the head of the program, Suzanne Bobezi, really encouraged me as a new adjunct faculty to go to this uh, conference to learn more about the practice of architecture programs and what's happening across the country. This is the second semester that I taught this class. The previous instructor had been teaching it for 25 years. He was actually very excellent. He was my professor way back when also, and has written several books about ethics of architecture that have actually been used for this course as some of the other, the cohort of Faculty at the conference mentioned. So it's kind of a large undertaking to come in and try to teach this class after having someone taught it for so long. And I'm just kind of looking at how things being in practice, I got to see how things may be more relevant, less relevant. And so it's kind of a leap of faith to readdress the program of the class. And so this conference was a great way for me to learn about what others are doing, how they're reinventing it, and kind of what they're teaching just to make sure that. We have the most relevant and interesting material that's going to be helpful for all the students at Oklahoma State. Well, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the teaching the class. I'm sure you've heard this before, but I was really intimidated to put together one of, I said, bring one of your class PowerPoints to teach to the other people attending, the conference attendees. And I'm thinking this is all these faculty who are teaching, you know, like at Harvard and all these other amazing institutions. I've been teaching it for years. Most of them are full-time faculty. And here I am adjunct putting together this course and making a PowerPoint and trying to make sure it's, I guess, as compelling as what they would be bringing. So it was really anxiety-filled for me to put that together. And in fact, I way overthought like every image that I pulled into the PowerPoint and putting the slides together. But I did find from that effort, uh, just kind of going through that part, having that lesson prepared and then hearing all the feedback. And then also watching everyone else speak to their kind of areas of expertise. And in our session, we had a few people that talked just about their syllabus and things they were doing to reinvent the program altogether. It was just, it was the most interesting, I think, for me to then directly take those little nuggets of or the tools that I've learned and to bring those back directly to the classroom, and in fact, um, I've already kind of applied those. The other thing I found really interesting was actually the homework. So we had this homework that was put together for us, and I had no idea, signing for the conference, that I would have to do any homework. And of course, the easy parts were like, "Hey, write your bio and bring your, you know, headshot." And those are things in practice that we have ready to go. It was you know easy to put that together. But then we are getting assignments. Love so go watch this, pick from these three, you know, webinars or watch two of these, you know, podcast, listen to two of these podcasts, and then give your feedbacks or feelings or what's missing, or how would you teach this? And it really made me start thinking about how we could, you know, reinvent how we're doing assignments, first of all, but then also how we can get more material and have access to more different viewpoints and dialogue in what we're teaching too. So I thought that was really relevant as well. Well, I mean, we've already implemented some of the things. So one of them was the assignment about reading for learning. I think I don't know exactly what it was called, but just like, why are you here? Like, kind of, why are people in architecture school and what are they getting out of school? And do grades really matter? And so I actually kind of recast that as an assignment that we had as an assignment to my students. And I graded those this morning and they had really, I'd say, really intuitive feedback, kind of a little bit of what you expect, I think, from architecture school. but a lot of them are already focused on their critical thinking and the ability to be problem solvers and learning beyond just the grading. I think that's inherent in architecture school, but just kind of having them write it down and say it and kind of make a statement like that, I think is kind of really impactful. And I think that's also what I got a lot about this conference for myself was not just, oh, here's, you know, podcasts that you've listened to, or here's, books that you might have read or you could read or you could influence material. It's like actually making us go through some of those lessons and do some of that work ourselves. And so we're not just, oh yes, we know how to do this or oh yes, we know how to talk about this, but making us actually talk about that and actually do that has been, I mean, really helpful. So I have changed the assignments to some of these more giving opportunity for people to make a choice. I think that was a really valuable tool to say, hey if you want to read about any subject that like here might be two or three places to get that content, but let the students choose where they get the content and what type of content they're most interested in reading. So then maybe it's more valuable to them what they get out of it and more valuable to them the impact of what it is they're learning about. I was mostly excited to see that I'm not totally off base in the kind of how I reinvented and put the program together. I mean, I've been practicing for 20 years. And I have a role now that's in project management as well as in marketing, business development and leadership. And so I was bringing some of these things to the forefront of the class already, but then to find out that we had, you know, lessons at the conference on these subjects or to dialogue about how to include some of these softer skills or leadership skills or critical thinking, it just made me feel, I guess, more confident in what I'm bringing to the course and what the students will be learning. So it gave me a little boost of confidence, which I really appreciated as well. Again, I don't have my whole you know semester to dedicate to prep for this class for like next semester. It's kind of here and there hit or miss because I am doing an adjunct. So I always feel like I'm a little bit behind in the preparation. So I, that boost of confidence is really helpful going into this semester.
8: So, my name is Roland Sharp Flotis, and I'm an architect and an assistant professor at North Dakota State University. I teach studio, I am the course coordinator for the year two design sequence, and I also teach seminars on the history and theory of architectural representation, and I teach professional practice. And we are located in Fargo, North Dakota. So our students are about 50-50, in the sense um, half of the students are from North Dakota. Predominantly a rural state, and then the other half are from Minnesota. And the bulk of those are from the Minneapolis, St. Paul municipality kind of area. The other students that are from Minnesota are from any of the surrounding communities within the rest of the state. So Duluth, Brainerd, uh, St. Cloud. I participated in the scholars program because I was interested in learning about how to frame the presentation of professional practice to students. I was also interested in some content. I come from 20 plus years of professional experience and those 20 plus years in a sense are almost intuitive by this point because you've done it so, since I've done it so often. So I didn't really know how to distill that and, and uh, present it to the students in a way that they'd understand and kind of in a structured form. So that's what I was uh, hoping to get out of attending this the scholars and professional practice. I would say my favorite part there were a couple, but the absolute favorite part was when we were able to present to each other a particular session that we taught. One, because it was informative, it kind of gave me some content to think about in terms of my presenting that topic in my course. But it's also, you know, in terms of delivery methods, understanding how different people deliver courses and how they deliver content and how they try to engage with students was, was really uh, beneficial.
5: And it was also good to
8: see that, for the most part, it was good to see other person's referencing the same material that I'm referencing. So, in a sense, gave me a little bit of confidence. Okay, I might be my first year teaching this course, but I'm on the right track because there's other people who have been teaching this for a while, and they're also referencing the same materials. I think the, the biggest takeaway I, I had was delivery in terms of how you want to engage with the students and how you deliver them. So, consequently, when I came back, I did a minor reevaluation, and so I decided to incorporate a lot more interactive activities within sessions, a lot of uh, digital media to keep, kind of get their attention, sustain their attention and to present ideas in different ways. So that's probably the biggest thing I I took away from. I think that going forward, the class will continually evolve, not just based on content, but also just in terms of delivery. So kind of looking and getting myself familiar with different ways of integrating more interactive means of delivering the content. For example, based on my experience at the Scholars Program, I incorporated already a mural exercise, an in-class mural exercise, a millboard board exercise into, into the session. And That's something that I would have done. It's also, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with mural, so I think as I go forward, I to get more familiar with it and I might think of other ways of incorporating that. The idea of taking, incorporating videos, I think is something that I want to keep addressing. And so hopefully as time progresses, I get more familiar with the technology that I'd be able to edit the videos to have specific, to show specific things that I want to show as opposed to kind of pausing and jumping around. So it's a matter of just, I guess, technical comfort in terms of engaging with interactive media to to in the course. You know, I went in somewhat with a little bit of trepidation because Again it was my first this is my first year teaching professional practice, going in and a lot of the participants had some experience teaching professional practice. But going there and meeting the different people who were participating in the program was good in terms of easing that anxiety. We had a very good group of people that got along together, and so we were able to talk and it was critical, but it wasn't cynical. So what you didn't feel like if somebody gave you criticism that they were kind of trying to be cynical about it, but they were just trying to help you engage more with the students, so that was was beneficial. I don't know all the other iterations of the program had that kind of camaraderie and collaboration. I tend to think they didn't, but I think we had a pretty good group, and that was this
9: My name is Asma Mehan. My expertise lies in architectural humanities, critical urban studies, and heritage studies. Presently, I serve as an assistant professor at Texas Tech University's Huckabee College of Architecture in Lubbock, Texas, a Hispanic-serving institution. Over the years, I teach a diverse group of students at Texas Tech, comprising architects, urban planners, interior designers, and historians. Many of our students hail from border cities in Texas and Mexico, such as Juarez and El Paso, and a significant number have Spanish as their mother tongue. And also these students are driven by desire to deeply understand architecture and its profound influence on our urban spaces, but also the local context that they are living so I would like to add that these students, they are not just learning about structures and technicalities. They are preparing to reshape the future of architecture in this region, and in the West Texas and beyond. What uh, truly stands out for me is like witnessing the blend of different perspectives and voices and I, I think I would like to phrase it like there is an undeniable magic in seeing the students engage with question and ultimately embrace a broader, more larger understanding of architectural heritage and uh, architectural knowledge. And especially from my point of view, when they interact with materials I've sourced from different languages, regions of the world and cultures, Uh, such as English, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, Persian, or Italian, the languages that I I, I worked with or the countries that I used to live, I think their enthusiasm is noticeable. I I think that's the most interesting part of the teaching part of this program. At the NCARP 2023 Scholars Program in Professional Practice event, I was truly and deeply inspired by the power of collaboration, dialogue, and interdisciplinary thinking with other colleagues coming from different universities and institutions. I think these interaction, intellectual interactions emphasize that uniting diverse expertise can significantly transform architectural education, architectural research, and uh, architectural practice. Showcasing the future of teaching and practicing architecture. But I do believe that it's the voice of the younger generation and the needs of the younger generation, and also their resilience and innovation, technological and methodological innovation that will drive this change. So I, I really enjoyed being part of this scholars program. The knowledge and understanding I drive from this event, I think it's going to enrich my teaching methodology this year. So what I I learned and uh, what was emphasized was the significance of a multifaceted, globally conscious approach in architectural pedagogy. Going forward, I plan to integrate more global narratives and diverse insights into our course modules, which I'm, I'm doing now. Always being mindful to the students' diverse backgrounds and experiences. The main takeaway was like being able to initiate a meaningful dialogue and and collaboration and interdisciplinary thinking with other colleagues who are engaged with architectural education, but also with architectural practice. And for for me, it was it was a valuable experience because I. Had the opportunity to, to be engaged uh, with different perspectives and points of view, which will help me a lot to be able to reflect and translate this diversity of uh, perspectives and different viewpoints, also in my course models this semester. I would like to emphasize uh, the importance of educating globally conscious architects, and globally conscious approach in architectural education.
3: The catalysts that pushed me into kind of rethinking my approach to this class, uh, some of them have been building for a while. You know, one of it was that there's so much content uh, that we have to cover in professional practice. I think everybody who teaches it feels that way that a 15-week semester was really just felt like a sprint from start to finish. And I was so focused on delivering all this content to my students, but I became very conscious that I wasn't able to have much time in classroom in particular to talk about, well, what do you think about this? You know, how much, you know, do you understand this material? How do, you know how do you think this is going to affect you and your career? That kind of reflection and critical thinking about the content. I always felt like we just didn't have the time for it. So uh, that that was building over time. And then you know the other then then along came COVID. And COVID forced all of us to engage a whole bunch of new technologies, you know, to stay engaged with our students through that experience. And I got more comfortable with those technologies and I learned how, you know, how to use them and how not to use them. And that gave me kind of an aha moment about something I've been been doing for a long time in my class, which is engaging practitioners by teaming them up with, you know, small groups of students paired up with one firm to sort of let that interaction with the firm be the way the students kind of contextualized Topics like marketing and communications and proposal development and mentoring young architects and financial affairs, all those topics we kind of did through this partnership. But it had always been kind of logistically cumbersome. And then along came Zoom and all these other kind of technology tools, and I said, Well, through COVID, I said, wow, this is a much more efficient way to structure those kind of things. And then I guess the last part is, you know, it just for me as a you know old dog learning new tricks. Uh, getting familiar with these kind of distance technologies and these online sort of tools and things kind of broke the ice and made me say, all right, this is the time. Let's let's take a step back and rethink how to deliver this course. And I will say the other key thing that made that possible for me is like, I hope like many universities, my university has a center for teaching excellence. And the we have a really wonderful team of people there who are learning designers. And, you know, I've been teaching for, gosh, almost over 30 years. And I was about 27 years into that experience before I ever reached out and asked for help from a learning designer. And that was amazing. They were they were so helpful in terms of me, you know, grappling with this technology and helping me through that process. So I was really fortunate to have the support of a team like that here at Auburn. So, what I've done is I've taken all of that content that I used to try to deliver through PowerPoint slides in a sage on the stage, we kind of say, you know, the delivery model, right, where I, I spent the whole contact time, you know, presenting information. I pushed all of that onto an online platform. So, it's kind of like writing a book, you know, with 12 chapters to it. So each section of the sort of online platform takes all that lecture and converts it into kind of a narrative format, but at the same time, embeds in it all of this sort of enriched content that was way beyond what I could ever do in, the, you know, in the classroom. Uh, it's where I use the a whole lot of data that's, you know, coming out of NCARB, for example. I embed in those lectures the Propel videos that is producing, I can embed in that online platform. And that gives students, you know, the ability to access that content outside of class, but on their own kind of schedule, they can go back to it when they need to. You know, it's just, it's there, it's this really rich kind of base of support. And then that allows me to use class time instead of just as the content delivery kind of tool, use class time for more discussion and reflection. Sometimes I still lecture because the content's pretty dense, you know, and they and the students say, we really kind of need you to go through this for us. But now we can do a whole lot more active learning exercises where the students are, you know, we're, we're sort of tackle a question and the students will kind of break out in small groups and discuss it and then we'll come back and share each other resources with each other. Another way we use the classroom so that now that we're What we're doing using Zoom with this practitioner kind of partnership project, the students interview the practitioners through Zoom on topics that are aligned with the course calendar, right? So when I talk about you know strategies for organizing and designing a firm, then the next week they'll talk to their firms about that topic. And then the following week we'll use class time to talk about their interview experience. What did you learn? What did you hear? you know, some students will be paired up with a 12 person firm and some students will be paired up with a 1200 person firm. Right. And so they get to hear each other talk about how their partner firm responded to that question versus, you know, the big firm, the small firm, the the firm that focuses on, you know, K through 12 education versus the firm that focuses on, you know, commercial office buildings. So this ability to use the classroom time is much more about Active learning, share and compare, all of that kind of stuff, that's just completely transformed the class. So those are the opportunities that this sort of flipping, sometimes people call this flipping the classroom, right? We, we kind of change the way we use class time. It's really a whole new paradigm for me. I'm, I love teaching it this way.
0: During the event, I had three programs I facilitated. The first was communication, authenticity, engagement, and connection. The next was a discussion on equity, diversity, and inclusion. And the third was discussion about the future of practice. Evelyn, since I know that the future of practice is a topic near and dear to your heart, I thought that we could discuss this piece of the curriculum And I can share a couple of the questions that I asked our participants to think about. And maybe we can just brainstorm and talk about this topic as a whole. Sure. Let's do it. So the first question I asked participants was, what are the challenges of the future of practice for which you see the need to prepare students? And some of the answers that I got included critical thinking skills, interdisciplinary collaboration, new technologies, the architect's value, and fostering generational transitions in culture and workplace. Interesting. All interesting. I think I, I tend
1: to lean more heavily into critical thinking and soft skills and all the things that you and I typically tend to talk about relative to to leadership and, and management. I think the one thing that we can teach our students coming out of school is that we're all taught that if you talk to a lot of architects, one of the joy of it is that it's an educational process. It's like a lifelong learning, right? Technology is developing. How you deliver projects is developing. Meeting new clients is an education in and of itself. But whenever we talk about that architects lack business acumen, Everyone always refers back to that one hour of professional practice, that class that we had. And I think we have to stop blaming the education system for only giving us one hour and remember that our career and our career as architects is learning. And we need to make sure that we are getting, we instill this idea of ongoing learning and development and that it covers all facets of architectural practice beyond just the project. So I think you and I have, you know, went on and got our MBAs, but we are still very much students of of business. And I think the important part is just making sure that every graduate knows that no matter what type of work that you do as an architect coming out of school, you are going to be a part of a business, whether it's starting your own company or being a part of an architecture firm or even working in a tech firm and understanding the very basics of a business at whatever level and making sure that you understand what the business is trying to do and how your role in that pushes the business forward, I think is something that we can all make sure that we're constantly doing on a regular basis.
0: Yeah, and I was really pleasantly surprised that one of the respondents did mention that alternative business models was something that they saw as an important element of the future of practice. Another question I asked our participants, What factors are driving industry change and transformation? So this idea of kind of like external factors and internal factors within our industry. Some of the responses included a broad spectrum of building services, everything in practice is a collaboration, bridging the generational transition that will occur in the next 10 to 15 years, generational change in architecture personnel resulting in lack of experienced architects. And the last one that I caught was the emergence of new documentation and fabrication technologies and changing lifestyle expectations. I can think of many more, and I'm sure you can, too.
1: So the thing that I really see missing from that list is the fact that there are going to be greater challenges and then also greater opportunities coming from for architecture practice, both inside and outside. So, a lot of VC spending is already happening in construction tech and fintech around how you democratize capital investments or the ability for individuals to contribute to big capital projects. So, I think th- there's a lot going outside of architecture that we need to be aware of that could influence and change our practice, as well as how we want to practice going forward. So with as much going on with outside coming in, I would say there's an opportunity for us to be on the inside, looking out and seeing where we can be a part of bigger conversations. Everything you listed for me, again, was like a big focus on a little bit of focus on changing the the business case or like the the business you know delivery, but it's still very much project focus. I think we need to be aware of business threats and opportunities that we're going to be facing going forward.
0: One of the interesting things that emerged from the discussion with participants was this idea of what is the future of practice. That there have been past iterations of this discussion, books published, articles published, and it was interesting hearing that there's so many different interpretations of what the future of practice is. I feel, you know, there's so many new jobs out there
1: that have come up even in the last two, three years that we weren't aware of, you know, that we just didn't know was going to exist. And that's going to continue to happen. And how we use technology and how technology plays into everything we're doing is going to continue to evolve. So I would just say that the definition of architectural practice is going to be a part of that continuous involvement, and we can either go with it and benefit from it, or we can we can fight it, and that always seems to be a losing game.
0: A few more questions I asked our participants include, what might the practice of architecture look like in 25 years, and how could the business model of architecture evolve to meet these needs? So...
1: I think it's, you know, leaning into the fact that we don't know that there's new job markets and new opportunities coming in, and especially with the growth and acceleration at AI, not only at the project level, but let's be honest, even at the business operations level, it's really hard for me to say, you know, what is architecture practice going to look like in 25 years and what is going to be our specific roles in projects in in 25 years? I, I think... What we need to do from a business model standpoint, though, is look and see how we can be more agile and adaptable and just embrace change and everything that comes along with it rather than continue to struggle with all the change that is happening to us. I wrote an interesting post on LinkedIn about how we have this victim mentality and inherently, and I think it's you know, if we spend all of the our energy kind of complaining about everything that's happening to us, then we're going to miss out on some of the opportunities on the horizon because we're just going to be focusing on the wrong things.
0: It was interesting. I'll read you a couple of quick quotes from participants and their responses, but one person responded, the more people involved, the larger fee. So how do we provide opportunities for growth for large collaborations without requiring larger fees to accommodate that within the office? Another person said, the cost of construction is too high and what we're paying our architectural workers is too low, schedules are too short, and crafts and trades are not skilled enough. This tied into a conversation that we had around the unionization in the industry, as well as the interest in cultural shift to create business models that allow for better work-life balance. In sharing these conversations about what the future of practice might be with the scholars, we wanted to close with a final segment featuring a parallel group within the NCARB community who is thinking about the distant future. Our next speaker is Jeremy Fretz, who will set up Our closing speaker.
2: You'll now get to hear from Dina Prastos, who serves as chair of NCARB's Futures Collaborative. That is actually a group that has been in place for several years now, and its charge is to really look at the far future. We have other groups looking at the near future. The Futures Collaborative, their purpose is to look 20 to 30 years out at changes in the profession and changes in the culture and really try and see what the possible futures might be. In
10: 2018, I actually volunteered with the NCARB Think Tank, which the prompt that year that you submitted a blind essay and as long as you were as in a phase of the licensure process. The prompt that year was, what does the role of the architect look like in 25 years? And that really got the gears turning and started to think about the rate of change within the digital world, the tools we're using, and, and our ability to impact in different ways. And so my, my first year with NCARB, I was part of that committee and part of the think tank, they shadow other committees just to get a kind of full view into NCARB and the organization and, and what they're responsible for. And so one of the committees that we shadowed was the Futures Collaborative, which I absolutely loved and really saw the need for the committee to, to exist and to continue to impact the, the direction and the trajectory of the organization and the profession as a whole. And so the next year I applied to be part of the Futures Tank and I was accepted and I've been involved for a couple of years now. And actually this year I'll be the chair of the committee and the futures collaborative looks at what is the role of licensure in the future? What is the role of the architect in the future? And there are kind of peripheral roads that we go down in terms of what is the career of the architect look like in the future? What does the built environment look like in the future? There's a lot of kind of discussion and debate around where we think we're going, what some of the dangers are, what some of the red flags are, what some of the warnings are, just so that we can start to get ahead and think of any obstacles that may be present or mitigate any risk or, or change course as needed. And so it's usually 10, 12 members from around the country, not all necessarily licensed architects. We've had other public members as well, which is super helpful not to only be kind of looking at the problem or the the issues through the lens of an architect, but looking through whether it's the board members of the, the state licensing boards or legal members that have been involved with architects in the past. And so that's just kind of overview of, of how the committee works. We meet on a bi-monthly basis and in person a couple of years as well. I've had many surprises along the way. One year we the entire year for the committee, every meeting we were interviewing kind of figures on the edge of architecture, where whether or not they were architects, but some relation to the field of architecture, the practice of architecture, just to kind of get the set of landscape of, all right, not every architect does the same thing. Many of us practice in, in many different ways. And so let's kind of make the, you know, plot out the bounds of what is architecture, what's on the edge of architecture and who are these people practicing on the edge of architecture and how, how can we learn more from, from that edge and peripheral moment to center and ground ourselves in the future? At the Scholars event, participants discussed the potential
0: for the business model of architecture to evolve. From your perspective, how do you think the business model is broken and what needs to change?
10: Oh, I love this. So many ways. Where do I start? So, I mean, we could certainly talk about insurance and liability. And the fact is that architects hold 95% of the liability for 5% of the fee. And that's completely twisted and backwards. When you look at the contractors who generally are developers who have 90% of the fee and 5% of the risk, we can talk about the hourly model. That's, you know, measuring productivity and time just isn't fair. It isn't just, if you're competent, proficient, and efficient, you should not make less as a result of that. Certainly, we can look at the career trajectory of an architect. Oftentimes, to become a licensed architect, you're enrolling in either a five-year program or getting additional education as a master's, as opposed to other degrees where you come out of school and you enter the profession right away and you're making, whether it's, you know, upper end or, or over six figures, the career trajectory of an architect, it's, you know, cost of that extra year in school, not only in terms of the, the direct cost of the debt, but not entering the workforce and not making an income for that extra year is not desirable. I, I can't imagine that, you know, young aspiring professionals see that. I mean, of course, you want an underlying and other reasons to become an architect, but you also want to make a living and be comfortable and there's a financial component of any career that you choose. And so that to me is something that was actually a hindrance. And I I diversified my own background going into engineering just to hedge my bets and have some diversification that if architecture wasn't if the economy was down and architecture wasn't flourishing, that I had a, you know, a backup. We could also talk about and probably most relevant to my practice today is the standard of care that is backwards looking by definition. If you're taken to court and they the judge will ask, you know, if you have 10 architects, if nine of them did this other thing and you did something different, well, it doesn't matter if you're progressive and pushing boundaries and trying to, in my case, look at, you know, future climate projections. If nine other the architects would have done what's in the code and you're surpassing the code, you're penalized. And so it's very hard to be progressive within the profession with the standard of care and the liability and the legal aspects that are kind of holding you back. I, I would say as a profession that prides prized itself on being creatives we have not been creative with our business model. We have very much become complacent with what was done before, which never entirely worked, but especially in this day and age, just with the cost of living and inflation and all of the things that have kind of come to a head in the last 10 to 15 years in terms of the economy, it's very hard to become an architect and have a successful career as an employee at a firm and also very hard to become you know, principal of a firm and work, build up that bank. And so it's just the model itself is is not desirable objectively and so the prompt then to me is or the underlying issue is that we're not good as a profession at communicating what our value contribution is and so that becomes the argument for how can we better communicate with clients what the value proposition truly is and not just default to the hourly model or a lump sum that worked before even though the costs and the, the the economy has changed since it was done last.
0: Returning to your work on the Futures Collaborative, how is your team discussing the future of practice and the future of architecture?
10: Sure. So I, I alluded to it a little bit before, one of the things that we've done is you know, a series of interviews around the profession and not necessarily the core profession, but probably that five or 10% that's on the periphery that's practicing in more abstract ways, but still very relevant to the built environment. And we ground ourselves a lot in thinking about licensure, Protecting the health, safety and welfare of the public in the built environment. And so one of the things we've talked a lot about is how health and safety with the advances in, in the digital world and digitization and AI, particularly, there's a lot that opens up in terms of opportunities to harness and leverage technology to help us in terms of the, those health and safety components so if you're designing something you can you know throw in some some parameters and do some parametric modeling it'll spit out you know the greatest you know productivity in in, in these terms and so you can start to utilize some of the the advances in technology to the betterment of practicing architecture but the, the more abstract piece though is welfare and how do you quantify mel- well and how do you harness and optimize digital tools to, to you know, it's, it's very intangible. It's very hard to put your finger on what defines welfare. And that's really because there's a human component to it. But one of the things that we do is really deep dive into the definition of welfare and how architects... That's one of the things that really differentiates us from other professions is that's what we're tied to. We're licensed to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public, not just health and safety and, and in the built environment. So another departure point that we'll look at is, well, what defines the built environment? And if you take the approach that I do, which is it's anything that's not natural. And so that includes a lot of abstract things, even, you know, within technology, within um, the the digital world, within the digital interface that we have with technology uh, and there, you know, social media, there's so many ways, regulation, there's so many different things that are built, they're constructed by mankind that if you start to think about how important it is that someone be looking during that design through the lens of welfare and reshaping, crafting and tooling, those outcomes begin to change could it be the architect's purview to look at regulation and and how regulation is crafted and and absolutely would it help us could it could it help mankind at the end of the day we're, we're doing something that's protecting the welfare of the public in whatever the built environment is
0: hi disruptors if you like the content from today's show you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast.
1: Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in the
0: community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is practice of practiceofarch. That's practice of A-R-C-H. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to drop us a DM and say hello.
1: Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by The Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.